What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 110, The Aten Appears. This is part three in the life of Amunhotep IV. Today, we begin looking deeper at the king's religious policies. It was time for Amunhotep to introduce his patron deity and build the first monuments to the glory of the Aten. This episode was brought to you by Helen Faulkner and Megan Thomas in gratitude for their donation. Helen, Megan, thank you dearly. May Amun-Re, Lord of Karnak and protector of the King Amun-Hotep IV, guard your home and your life. Also, thank you very much to Brittany and Sian, who became patrons of the podcast. Brittany, Sian, I'm incredibly grateful to you for your support, and I hope that offerings to Amun-Re will bring good fortune to your house. To everyone listening, welcome. On with the show. The year was 1361 BCE, approximately. Regnal year 2, under the majesty of Nefer Keperure Wa Enre. Amunhotep IV, the god who ruled Thebes, was now firmly ensconced in power. Having chosen a queen, Nefertiti, and established his public image, the pharaoh of Egypt was now looking to express his ideas about religion, kingship, and the world in which he lived. Although few might have realised it, Egyptian society was on the brink of a most curious journey. In his first year on the throne, Amunhotep IV's religious ideas had been expressed modestly. He appeared before traditional gods, making conventional offerings and asking for the expected rewards, giving life, renewing creation, an eternity on the throne, that sort of thing. To Atum Re and Re Horakti, Amunhotep IV had been obedient and supplicant, just as a pharaoh should. Now, the king was ready to put his personal vision forward a bit more strongly. With greater confidence and a more developed set of ideas, Amunhotep IV was able to articulate a new vision. He seems to have done this in the form of a speech delivered to his highest servants. Remarkably, part of that speech survives to this day and reveals the beginnings of Artenism. Early in regnal year two, approximately, Amunhotep IV summoned his courtiers and highest servants. These servants came together for a Hai Nesu, a royal appearance, and it seems to have been this occasion that the king began to reveal his unique vision of the gods and the world in which Egyptians lived. Fragmentary blocks from Karnak Temple record traces of that speech, and although badly damaged, those blocks have given us hints of what the king revealed. The decree went something like this. Quote, the temples of the gods fall into ruin, 
their bodies do not endure. Since the time of the ancestors, it is the wise man that knows these things. Behold, I, the king, am speaking, so that I might inform you concerning the appearances of the gods. I know their temples, and I am versed in the writings, specifically the inventory of their primeval bodies. And I have watched as they, the gods, have ceased their appearances, one after the other. All of them have stopped except the god, who gave birth to himself, and no one knows the mystery of how he performs his tasks. This god goes where he pleases, and no one else knows his going. I approach him, the things which he has made, how exalted they are. End quote. This speech is fascinating, and it's a shame that it only survives in tiny, disparate fragments. If only we could hear the full extent of what the king revealed. At first, Amunhotep may have been speaking quite conventionally. He talks about temples falling into ruin, and only wise men knowing about the things which endured since the time of the ancestors. That's fairly conventional Egyptian rhetoric, it probably wouldn't have raised many eyebrows. But then, Amunhotep started to talk about the gods, and how they had ceased their activities. This was a bold claim to make, as if the great protectors of the land had withheld their beneficence, and now humans were alone on earth. It was probably at this point that Amunhotep's audience started to become confused. What exactly was the king trying to communicate? Why would he suggest that the gods were not there? It was at this point that the king began to reveal his vision. Amunhotep spoke to his courtiers of the god who gave birth to himself. This is, of course, the Aten, a being whose power is so great that he begat himself, just like how Atum Re, the creator, had done back in the day. The king also revealed the new god's mystery. He said, no one knows the secret of how he, the Aten, acts, and no one knows his going. Unlike any god beforehand, Aten was a deity of infinite potential, but also full of secrets. It seems that Pharaoh revealed a truth to his followers. This truth was simple, that the sun disk Aten was a great god, all-powerful, self-created, but he was unknowable, mysterious, and distant. While other gods could be accessed through their statues, the Aten remained unreachable, and shining in the sky, he was beyond ordinary knowledge. Of course, that secrecy didn't apply to the king. On the final surviving line, the king spoke of how he approached the Aten and the things which Aten had made. Amunhotep saw those things and how exalted they were. Ultimately, the king realized the truth. There was no god like Aten. He encapsulated this with a stunning rhetorical flourish. Quote, what would he be like, another of thy kind? Thou, Aten, art he who is alone. End quote. That rhetorical question, what would he be like, another of thy kind, was another way of saying that there was no other god like Aten. Considering how long the Egyptian religious tradition was, this statement was a very curious one indeed. This first speech of the king to his assembled courtiers is, in hindsight, a lightning bolt from the blue. 
Amunhotep revealed a unique vision, a personal revelation. The king had seen the light, literally, and realised the truth of an omnipotent but distant god. Speaking to his followers, Pharaoh laid out a manifesto for that god and his relationship to the world. It is a shame that this text is so poorly preserved. Even with heavy reconstructions, we only have a tiny shred of what the king must have said to his courtiers. With that in mind, it's still very unclear exactly what Amunhotep IV was trying to convey. This speech, although remarkable and fascinating, only gives us a tiny glimpse. In order to better understand him, we have to turn to Amunhotep's deeds, specifically the monuments he now commissioned for his god. For a long time, the first monuments to Aten were a bit of a mystery. References in texts and a few fragments of stone suggested that they had once existed, but it wasn't until the 1920s that genuine finds came to light. And it was only in the 1960s that a sustained archaeological project began to uncover these ancient monuments. The Akhenaten Temple Project began in 1966, started to excavate sections of Karnak Temple, recording and documenting the vast array of materials left behind. The results were more than fruitful. Over decades of work, the Akhenaten Temple Project has uncovered more than 34,000 decorated and inscribed blocks. Each of these added a tiny piece to the understanding of Amunhotep IV's monuments at Karnak. Today, the Akhenaten Temple Project is essential to understanding this king's early reign. Much of what I'm about to tell you comes directly from their excellent work. To begin with, let's orient ourselves. If you visit Karnak Temple today, you tend to approach it from the west. The River Nile is behind you, and the grand pylons, obelisks, and ram-headed sphinxes lead you towards the main sanctuaries. You pass through columned halls, bark shrines for statues, the huge open court, and the Akhmenu temple of Thutmose III. If you go far enough east, you wind up in a maze of small rooms, eventually leading to the backyard, which is full of broken monuments. By this point, you are near the eastern wall of the temple. It is here that you will find the Aten monuments. Amunhotep IV commissioned several buildings within the sacred enclosure of Karnak. These sanctuaries were separate from the main Amun-re structure. They were built towards the east, facing the sunrise. It seems that he wanted to put them in a new, clean space where the king could worship his favourite god without any other monuments getting in the way. Surprising no one, this new area was going to be called the Per Aten, aka the House of Aten. Let's take a visit. The Per Aten had four main structures. The first, and most important, was an area called the Gemet Pa Aten. Loosely translated, this means, that which the Aten has found, or perhaps, the Aten is found here. The grammar on this particular name is still a little bit uncertain. Either way, the Gemet Pa Aten seems to be the place where the Aten appears, shining its light upon Karnak. With that in mind, it's possible that this was the area that the pharaoh revealed his particular vision for the god, and perhaps initiated his followers into its mysteries. 
The Gimmat Par Aten took the form of a square courtyard, approximately 22 meters long on each side. This was reasonably large by the standards of the day. The courtyard was, of course, open to the sunlight, and there may have been stone offering tables here and there, although those do not survive. A raised platform or dais may have provided a place for the king to reveal his ideas, perhaps in the same speech which opened this episode. Assembling in this courtyard, favoured servants and officials could listen to the pharaoh's revelations while above, the light of Aten shone brightly. It is significant that the first Aten temple takes the form of a courtyard, a wide open space. Conventionally, Egyptian temples emphasised darkness. Shrines were closed off areas, hidden from view by innumerable doors and gateways. Divine statues were hidden from most people, and while they made the occasional procession in a festival, most of the time the faces of the gods were secretive, unknown by the masses. Aten didn't work like that. By its very nature, the sun disk in the sky, the Aten clashed with that old hidden ideal. The sun is visible to all, except the visually impaired, so it wasn't possible, or even desirable, to keep the cult of Aten locked away in conventional shrines. Sunlight demands space to shine, and as few blockages as possible. So it's not hard to see why the Gemet Pa Aten and other Aten temples were designed as courtyards rather than shrines. From the very beginning, the nature of this god forced a new understanding of sacred spaces themselves. Of course, the temple being a courtyard didn't mean that just anyone could access Aten. The Gemet Pa Aten was still surrounded by a wall and thus closed off from the outside world. But at the very least, Witnessing the god was now much easier. Perhaps this is another meaning of Gemet Pa Aten. The Aten is found here. The Gemet Pa Aten wasn't just an area to worship the god. It also featured an ornate program of decoration, one that glorified the king and his queen. Around the exterior of the courtyard, the Gemet Pa Aten included a ring of stone pillars each one supporting a towering statue of the pharaoh. These images were genuinely colossal, up to 20 feet tall in some instances. The statues faced inwards, feet on the ground, backs to the pillars. They were very similar to Osiris pillars, found on buildings like the temple at Deir el-Bahari. An Osiris pillar was a simple image of the pharaoh wearing the shroud of Osiris and holding his symbols of power the crook, and the flail. The Amunhotep IV statues are very similar to these. They depict the king standing tall, with crossed arms holding the royal scepters. What's different is that these statues do not wear the Osiris shroud, suggesting that the king was borrowing from earlier images, but changing them to suit his needs. The colossal statues were joined to every pillar on all four sides of the Gemet Pa Aten, if you stood in the centre of this courtyard, you would have a sense of the king gazing at you from every direction. Above, the light of the Aten, the royal god, would shine relentlessly, the sun's rays beating down on your head. This may have been an unsettling experience. Under the gaze of royalty and the divine, a nervous worshipper might find themselves swooning in the heat.
Gazing past the statues and the pillars to which they are attached, you would also catch glimpses of a lavishly decorated wall surrounding the whole area. These paintings depicted the pharaoh and queen in the act of celebration. They made offerings to Aten, received the adulation of their subjects, and generally reveled in their splendour and majesty. They even included scenes of a said festival, held by the king to glorify the great Aten. We'll come back to that next episode, along with the artwork and the grand statues. Suffice to say, these images are a decadent and fascinating glimpse at what the pharaoh was doing. Gemet Pa Aten, the Aten is found here, was a new landmark in Thebes. Separate from Amun's sanctuary, but still close to it, the temple was a declaration. It proclaimed to all how Amunhotep IV favoured solar worship above all, and it communicated the majesty of the king resplendent in the light of the Aten. That light shone down on all, and it was visible at all times of the day. As you can imagine, this monument was a very visible statement of the king's early agenda. We will return to the Gemet Pa Aten next episode to explore a few more of the details. For now, it is time to move on to a place outside of Thebes. Far from the royal city, another area of Egypt offers a surprising amount of information about these sacred monuments. To raise Gemet Pa Aten and the other monuments within Karnak, Amunhotep IV required a vast quantity of building materials. Monuments do not spring out of the ground, they need labour, tools, and stone. So the government would need to organise a quarrying expedition. Remarkably, we can pinpoint the exact quarry that this stone came from, and we even have a record of what the king commanded. Hopping into a boat, we unfurl a sail and ply the oars, travelling upriver. After a day or so, we would find ourselves approaching a vast expanse of yellow-orange stone overshadowing the river valley. This is the Jebel El Silsila Quarry, an expanse of sandstone that was the premier source of building material for many pharaonic monuments. We first visited Jebel Silsila back in episode 91, when Amunhotep III began his own working project at the region. Basically, Jebel Silsila is a vast quarry, extending deep into the cliffs on the west bank of the Nile. The area was ruled by Sobek, the crocodile lord, and the locals worshipped him as a protector. At Jebel Silsila, a community of workmen, generations of them, laboured to carve enormous slabs out of the natural rock formation. Their work made possible a hundred different structures at Karnak, Luxor Temple, and the west bank of Thebes. They also built thousands of smaller monuments for lesser officials. We salute these men and women, and their efforts. If you go to Jebel Silsila today, you will find the walls decorated with rock carvings. They date from all of Egyptian history, from prehistoric petroglyphs to pharaonic graffiti and records, all the way to Greek and Roman testimonies. The site is full of valuable information. Tucked away on a forgotten space, a testament for Amunhotep IV tells of his grand projects. High up on a cliff, a tall flat rectangle marks the activities of Neferkeperure Wa Enre. 
This stela tells of how Amunhotep planned to build new monuments, how he intended to expand the temples at Karnak. In a short but fascinating text, the king tells of this process. It begins with an introduction, recording how Amunhotep IV summoned his officials and made his grand declaration. Quote, The living Horus, the mighty bull who is tall of plumes, the two ladies great of kingship in Karnak, the Horus of gold who elevates the crowns, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Nefer Keperure Wa'enre, Amonhotep, the god who rules Thebes, great in his lifetime, may he live forever continually, the beloved of Amun-Re, lord of the sky, ruler of eternity. It was the first occasion that his person, the pharaoh, laid a command upon the king's scribe, the overseer of troops called Ameni. Pharaoh commanded Ameni to carry out all of the work projects, starting from Elephantine and ending at Edfu. He did this in order to fashion the great Benben of Rehorakti in his name of Shu, who is the Aten. This would be built at Karnak Temple. End quote. Amunhotep IV, great in his lifetime, etc., etc., desired to build new monuments for Rehorakti. He summoned his overseer of troops, called Ameni or something like that. The name is damaged, unfortunately. Speaking to Ameni, Pharaoh laid down a command. Begin quarrying throughout the southern regions. Gather sandstone, that soft, easily worked material that is abundant in Upper Egypt. Sandstone would build the king's vision at Karnak Temple. Amunhotep planned to erect a new Benben. The Benben is the pyramid-shaped structure which goes at the top of obelisks. Benbens are an old motif going all the way back to the Pyramid Age, and they are a prominent feature of the solar religion. As you can imagine, quarrying a new Benben was a significant project. Everything had to go right, and the work was vital to the king's religious agenda. So the king was going to need plenty of men and lots of quarrying work. He needed all of this quickly. To make sure it happened, Amonhotep turned to his officials and demanded something severe. Quote, Pharaoh commanded Ameni to carry out all of the work projects, and he laid a command upon the overseer of the troops to perform a great forced labor project. Quarrying sandstone, the officials, companions, and chief standard bearers would be the taxation masters for the stone image. End quote. A forced labor project. Yikes. Amunhotep was not mucking around. He wanted sandstone, and he wanted it now. So the word went out. Pharaoh was opening the quarries anew. Willing or not, stonemasons would serve. So, the work at Jebel Silsila began, and the king commemorated the expedition in a large stela carved into the cliff face. That stela not only recorded the event, but also depicted the king making offerings to one of the great gods. Considering that this stone quarrying expedition was meant to glorify the Aten, you would be forgiven for assuming that Amunhotep appeared before that deity. Well, not exactly. Surprisingly for this king, the stealer shows him standing before Amun. Amun-Re, lord of the sky and ruler of eternity, appears in his traditional form a human-headed male wearing the tall crown of feathers, which is his trademark. 
He stands to the left, while Amunhotep on the right makes offerings of sweet oil for the great god. It's a purely conventional scene, and if it weren't for Amunhotep's later career, we wouldn't think twice about it. But still, it's there, a quiet testimony to the early, conventional days of a young pharaoh in action. To drive the point home, the text itself refers to the king as beloved of Amun-Re. It's unexpected and fascinating. Amun-Hotep IV may have made offerings to Amun-Re, but his sandstone quarrying and the monuments which that quarrying funded were all dedicated to his favourite deity. The new Ben-Ben obelisk was intended to praise the Aten, and as the barges set off for Thebes, workmen in the city were preparing the ground for a new monument. The Ben-Ben would require a home, and it just so happens that we know what that home was. We now come to the end of chapter 1. After the break, it's time to return to Karnak to visit the second of the great Aten temples. This monument is a particularly fascinating one, because it bears a special relationship to Queen Nefertiti. Then, we can delve into the next revelations of Aten the god. From his old iconography, the deity begins to take on a new artistic form. A most unusual form, all things considered. That is chapter 2, after the music. See you in a moment! Chapter 2. The year was still 1361 BCE, approximately. Southern Egyptians were experiencing a flurry of royal activity. From Jebel el Salsila to Waset, Thebes, the river was packed. Great barges laden with sandstone blocks made their way north. Their destination was Karnak Temple and the great shrines which Pharaoh was building for Aten. We've already visited the largest of the Aten temples, the Gemet Pa Aten. Next door to this though, and somewhere in the eastern areas of Karnak, there was another space dedicated to the great sun god. Perhaps equally important to the Gemet Pa Aten, this new area was taking shape around the Benben stone, which had been quarried at Jebel Silsila. The Benben was going to a special shrine dedicated to its use. That shrine was called the Hoot Benben. Hoot Benben, or Enclosure of the Benben, was a special area set aside for the obelisk. We've already seen how Amunhotep commissioned that monument, commanding his servants to, quote, carry out all of the work projects, starting from Elephantine and ending at Edfu, in order to fashion the great Benben of Rehorakdi in his name of Shu, who is the Aten. End quote. The Benben obelisk was quarried out of the sandstone, loaded onto a barge, and then shipped downriver to its new home. Unfortunately, this particular monument is lost, and we're not exactly sure where it was. But based on similar buildings from other periods, we can guess that the Hoot Benben involved a courtyard with columns and decorations, and the obelisk itself in the centre. Altars and offering tables probably faced towards it. Although the Hoot Benben itself is gone, many of the building blocks survive. 
Those blocks were dismantled and reused by later pharaohs, unintentionally preserving them for future generations. When archaeologists found these blocks, they were able to reconstruct a large portion of the Hoot Benben's decoration. Carved images and hieroglyphic texts reveal parts of the shrine's operations. Some of it is what you'd expect bowing servants, piles of offerings, and the rays of Aten shining down on all. What we don't expect is the absence of a particular figure. You see, on the surviving blocks of the Hoot Benben, we don't actually see the king at all. Instead, we only see Nefertiti. What's going on here? Well, the images we have, and you can see some on the website, suggest that by and large the queen was worshipping Aten in some kind of dedicated area. Speaking about this, Donald B. Redford, the excavation lead for this archaeological project, offered an interesting observation. Quote, Nefertiti had an importance in the reliefs, unsuspected until now. There is little doubt that this importance reflects a degree of power and influence that doesn't quite match with her rank as great king's wife. She seems like a true scion of the 18th dynasty's matriarchal women. End quote. Nefertiti appears on the scene with the full splendour of a lady like T. Waltzing in seemingly from nowhere, the new royal wife achieves a level of visibility and influence that had taken decades for her predecessor to achieve. Of course, this raises all kinds of questions. Why does Nefertiti have such prominence compared to her forebears? Was she an instigator for some of these religious ideas? Or was she a political force so influential that the king showered her with prestige? Do these scenes depict a woman of great power, or an object whom her husband adored? This is an impossible tangle to undo, and Joyce Tildesley offers a good summary of the problem. In her 2018 book Nefertiti's Face, Dr. Tildesley builds on 30 plus years of speculation and observes the following, quote, These images are often cited as proof that Nefertiti was, even at the start of her husband's reign, allowed to usurp the king's priestly authority. The situation is, however, less clear-cut. It is true that we would expect to see the king making all of the offerings, because this role was traditionally reserved for a man. It may well be that Amunhotep IV is absent because, if he were present in the scene, he would block Nefertiti's access to the god. End quote. Basically, the answer might lie in gender norms of the time. If, by their mere presence, men dominate religious practices, then the only way for a woman to receive the god's blessing is to remove the man. So maybe the Hoot Benben only shows Nefertiti because, otherwise, she would be blocked from the Aten by the towering presence of Amunhotep IV. After all, the king does tend to overshadow everyone else. Personally, I like to think that Nefertiti and Akhenaten were sort of partners in the royal decision-making, but I'm a romantic, and it's easy to wander into historical fiction with something like this. Unfortunately, the surviving art gives us more questions than answers. We don't have a clear sense of what Nefertiti's role was. We just know that she had one. Sadly, this is one of those situations where we don't have enough information. Frustrating, huh? The Hoot Benben is an enigmatic monument. 
If archaeologists could locate it, they would surely be able to expand greatly on our understanding. Unfortunately, decorated blocks, taken away from the structure and reused elsewhere, are all that survives. So, for now, the Hoot Benben, enclosure of the Benben, remains a mystery. It will have to stay that way, until more evidence emerges. So the great shrines to Aten were rising. Dust choked the air at Karnak as two grand monuments, the Hoot Benben and the Gemet Pa Aten, were constructed out of thousands of sandstone blocks. As the scaffolding grew higher and the walls were in place, stone workers arrived to apply their chisels and begin decorating the blocks. At least one of those monuments had a unique feature, a decorative program dominated by Nefertiti and her daughters. But there was another curious feature as well. You see, as the Aten temples rose, the pharaoh decreed that the god would be represented in a new form. Beginning in regnal year two, the Aten would no longer appear as a falcon-headed male. Instead, it would be something else, something purer. Previously, Amunhotep had praised Aten, the sun disk, in a modest, conservative form. The god appeared only on some doorways at Karnak, and he was depicted in a very traditional manner. When we last saw him, Aten was appearing as a falcon-headed man wearing a sun disk as his crown. His name, as expressed, was Rei Horakti, rejoicing in the horizon, in his name Shu, who is in the Aten. What this seems to mean is that the god was embodied in the light, Shu, which emanated from the sun disk, Aten. This happened in the horizons of sunset and sunrise, and the god was clearly a new manifestation of radiance and life, and his appearance was a moment of rejoicing. Those expressions had been conventional enough, only a few tweaks to what many already understood about the sun god. The Aten, specifically, was gaining prominence, that much is clear. But during the first regnal year, Amunhotep IV had been relatively conservative with his proclamations. The shrines at Karnak provide the first images of Aten the sun disk in his famous abstract form. This is a distinctive image. The god now appeared as a circular orb, the disk, at the top of each scene with long straight lines extending downward from the circle. These lines were the sun's rays, and each one terminated in a hand. These hands usually hovered over the king or queen, either patting them kindly or helping them with whatever activity they were doing. Occasionally, we see the hands holding a symbol of Ankh, life, before the face of Amunhotep and Nefertiti as if the sun god was literally bestowing life upon his subjects. Other times, the Ankh itself will hang suspended from the sun disk. It was a visible depiction of a very basic idea. The sun is the source of life. The sun makes living possible. Naturally, this usually applies to the royal family alone. The Aten appears grandly, his arms stretch out across different people, and even the king and queen seem positively tiny compared with the radiance of this god. When you include the disc and its rays, Aten dominates any scene in which he is visible. For all intents and purposes, it seems as if the Aten was in command of everything that happened beneath him. 
It is a powerful image, a symbol of divine might and favour shining down upon the world. These kinds of power symbols might seem self-explanatory, but we should still ask ourselves, what exactly was Amunhotep trying to communicate, and what is it about the Aten that attracted his attention so specifically? Sun disks are not unique to Amunhotep IV's reign. They appear earlier, and they continue to appear later. You've probably seen the famous ones, the orange disks with huge wings stretching out to either side. And you've certainly gazed upon the gods wearing their solar disks like halos atop the head. So the symbol itself is common within the visual language of Egyptian religion. But there's no denying that Amunhotep IV did something different with the motif. The only question is, what was he intending? Well, this is tricky, and I hope you'll indulge me for a minute as I explore the history of sun disks in Egyptian art. Long story short, they're very common, but they have a whole range of meanings depending on the context. I'll try to keep it simple, but the basic gist goes like this. The sun disk was always a manifestation of Ray's power. It wasn't Ray himself, but the god would sometimes be described as living in his sun disk, or in his Aten. Sometimes Ray was called Lord of the Aten, or Lord of the Disk. Basically, the Aten, the disk which hangs in the sky, was connected with Ray, but wasn't Ray himself. Why was there a distinction? Well, that is a long theological story that I really don't have the time or expertise to explain here. What's important is that Amunhotep seems to have removed the separation between Ray and Aten. For whatever reason, Amunhotep IV decided that Ray, the sun god, and Aten, the sun disk, shouldn't really be apart. Henceforth, Aten would be Ray, and Ray would be Aten which led to an inescapable conclusion. If the two gods were effectively the same being, then there was no need to show them in different forms. Thus, the Aten took prominence and became the motif of Amunhotep's faith. So these images of Aten began to appear commonly through the temples at Karnak. Karnak itself was lavished with artistic care in every generation, but the monuments constructed by Amunhotep IV show a particular vibrance in imagery. Images of Aten appeared everywhere, shining down over the royal family and the many scenes of worship. In his pure form of the sun disk, the god, Rei Horakti, who rejoices in the horizon in his name of light which is in the Aten, was now manifesting clearly in the royal works. From here, the religion of Amunhotep seems to have been taking shape in a visual sense, and when we think back to the speech which Amunhotep seems to have made early in year two, we get a sense that this year was a key moment in the king's philosophy. It seems like a lot of things were coming together. Amunhotep was figuring out how he was explaining his beliefs. He had figured out the language with which Aten should be communicated to the world. Of course, because this is Egypt, that language is communicated both in speech, in words, and in images. So, as the Aten temples rose, the king took his ideas, which had previously been communicated through words and perhaps through some deeds, and he gave them expression in artistic imagery. 
if the concept of the Aten was to rise above all other deities, to be the sole source of power and majesty in the world, then it made sense that the image of the god itself would take precedence, and would be free of all other encumbrances. This is how, perhaps, we come to the Aten as a disc. The god shines above every scene, and he is free of any human or animal imagery that might tie him too strongly both to earth and to the traditional interpretations of older deities. In other words, it seems as though Amunhotep was trying to go for something simpler, something purer, something less complicated than what had been the case before. We do have to be careful not to put our own ideas onto him too much, but all of these things together make it seem as though Amunhotep had a vision, and that vision involved a relatively straightforward expression. The Aten was a god above all, and it could be represented very simply. All it took was a little imagination, and a visionary willing to put that idea into practice. We've spent a lot of time at Karnak recently, for obvious reasons. The first monuments of Amunhotep IV are almost all located here, and the texts found on these buildings give us the material we need to explore the pharaoh's early ideas. One last piece of text from Karnak gives us a glimpse at the relationship between Amunhotep IV and his favourite god. In a fragmentary piece, a set of hieroglyphs tell of the Aten's favours, and how he responded to Amunhotep's worship. As you can imagine, Aten truly adored his beloved son. Quote, you, the Aten, say to me, My heart is glad with what you have done for me, Amunhotep. How prosperous is a son who does effective things for his father, the one who made him. I give to you my office and my position, beloved of and favoured by the Aten. End quote. Ah, of course. How greatly Aten loves the king for the things he has done. Aten shines down upon the pharaoh, his beloved son, and bequeaths to Amunhotep the power and majesty of rule. In this short text, Amunhotep did what countless pharaohs before had done. He set himself as the heir to the god, one who rules Egypt in the sky. For these early days, we must always remember Amunhotep IV inherited his power and many of his ideas from a long tradition and culture. While he brought new ideas to the table, many of those were rooted in what came before. Of course, what was about to follow would be something else entirely. As regnal year two ended, Amunhotep IV was starting to move in an interesting direction. The king was praising an old god in a new form, and he seemed to be focusing his efforts exclusively on that divine being. Other gods, while still existing, were falling out of royal favour, and the king was dedicating himself wholly to the being whom he prized above all. From his temples at Karnak to the new iconography, Amunhotep IV was articulating something bold and transformative. Pretty soon, that radical impulse was going to burst out in a flurry of unprecedented ideas. 
On the next episode, we'll see how Amunhotep's new concepts also transformed the artwork being created at his temples. The king would change the style of imagery in many ways, from 2D reliefs to enormous statues. The king would reveal strange body shapes, unusual faces, a whole new artistic language was about to emerge. And as if that wasn't enough, worship of Aten was now going to culminate in a most unexpected ritual, a said festival for the god held at Karnak itself. Join me soon for episode 111, in which the king Amunhotep IV unveils the next stage of his transformative religious ideas. Royal Gods, releasing in two weeks. I would like to thank everyone who has donated to the show or signed up to the Patreon. I appreciate it more than you know. Thank you. Extra thanks to Linda, a priest-level supporter whose generosity keeps the scribes at their papyrus and the labourers at their tasks. Your support is wonderful, Linda. I hope you enjoy the free mug. If you like the podcast, consider supporting it financially. Every dollar helps, and the Kingdom of the Two Lands is not a cheap operation. There are priests, overseers, and scribes to pay, and at some point that royal too will need to be completed. If you would like to support my continued existence, consider visiting patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast, or making a donation via PayPal. You'll find links in the episode description, and you can visit the website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com, and click support the show. If you choose to help, thank you very much. Stick around after the music for a brief epilogue. We spent some time today at the sandstone quarries of Jebel el Silsila, which hummed and thrived during the early years of Amunhotep IV. After his death, this quarry would continue to serve pharaohs and governments for more than 1500 years. While it doesn't get much fame outside of academia, Jebel Silsila is one of the most important archaeological sites in Egypt particularly for understanding the work that ordinary men and women did, and how they organised their most famous monuments. Coincidentally, at the time of recording this episode, archaeologists working at Jebel Silsila have just announced a discovery. They have found a sandstone workshop dating to the time of Amunhotep III. This includes half-finished sphinxes, a broken obelisk, or benben, and a shrine, Naos, belonging to the great king. It is an exciting find, so of course it appeared just after I finished the last episodes on that king, but hey, better late than never. The workers who served Amunhotep III were probably the same ones who served Amunhotep IV, or at least they were the fathers of those who served Amunhotep IV. Since Neb Matre ruled for nearly four decades, an entire generation of artisans came and went under his rule. Either way, the transition between the two pharaohs probably didn't affect work here very much. So we can guess that when news came of Neb Matre's death, the workers simply carried on. At best, they stopped working for a few months, and then, once Amunhotep IV arrived, they simply returned, picked up their tools, and carried on where they'd left off. This kind of transition must have happened to them all the time, and as archaeological work continues, we may get better information 
about the lives and activities of these important folk. <laughs>